Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that gives you a peek inside the minds of some truly inspirational teachers. This week, I'm delighted to welcome the inimitable Matt Swain onto the podcast to talk about all things mastery. Matt and his colleagues have spent years refining their implementation of a mastery model of schooling, which draws on same-day intervention to amazing effect. We discuss what this looks like in practice, whether a mastery model is a realistic aspiration, and what we need to be aware of before traversing such a path. I have absolutely no doubt that you're going to love this episode. So without further ado, let's spend some time thinking deeply about primary education. Great to have you here today, Matt. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Morning, uh, morning, Kieran. Morning, everyone. So we're going to jump right in. But anyone who's interested in Matt's origin story should check out season two, episode one. You know, because during that, he discusses the step approach to supporting early career teachers. You know, with the wonderful Tom Gary. The focus of this chat will be mastery. And so, first off, what does mastery of primary mean to you? I, I think I think there's some sort of a mindset shift, isn't there? I think yeah. I think McCourt talked about this in 2017 book which, which really made a difference to how I thought about education if I'm honest I mean I've been educating children primary at least for what 13 years I think 13 years yes and all have been really successful or, or I thought I had been so I sort of like the the marker for that would be like your key stage two results you know I'd started teaching uh, in, in London and I spent about, like, about eight or nine years in London actually sort of uh, and and in Wandsworth I was very fortunate to work in Wandsworth uh, for a large part of my sort of London career at least and and that's a particularly good borough for maths like it, it was you know maths was done well in Wandsworth I think it's like the second highest performing in the country at the time as an MBA you know back in those days I was churning out really high numbers as a year six teacher I'm really proud of that and consider myself a great great maths teacher and for a long time I you know I was really proud of that and all the kudos that came with it. Lots of people were very interested in, in, in the, uh, the school I worked in and how we were getting these results and, uh, and you know, and they can watch you teach and it was really exciting. How the DFE can watch me like saying it's it really quite exciting stuff. Uh, and uh, the marker then really was like how many kids are leaving at, at the percentage, the uh, a high percentage. And I think, and I thought, well, yeah, we're, we're doing pretty well at this. I'm actually pretty good at this. And, the, and I was maths coordinator. So the people I work with, uh, I'm doing a good job of making them quite good at it. But I think I read McCall's book. Yeah, it was pretty much as soon as it came out, to be honest. And I'd always kind of had a, I always had a sort of like a concern really around, I was in year six. So what you, anyone in year six would have, will find typically that, that whether or not people, yeah, I mean, this may, this may not be the case in many schools now, but definitely for a long period, and you know, you'll recognise this. So in year six, it was your job to get them all across that finish line. And at this point, yeah, you'd often be facing the, the full spectrum of like seven year gaps, you know, and there'd be kids all along that. So you have... Yeah, X percentage, so where they need to be, and then another percentage working year five, if you want to look at it that way, and then at four and three, and then even some working really at year two levels. And it's your job to work sort of like, you know, miracles and to push them sort of across that line. And, and, I always, and I'd always be really aware of this, like, so as a year six teacher, what, what you'd also know was happening is that to do this, you'd need to remove time from children. Okay, so what you need to do is to get them to cross this line, to be successful, or, or and I, 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 I'd argue now it wasn't successful, but to be successful in the eyes of, of Ofsted, in the eyes of the governing body, and in the eyes of schools around you in the LEA, and to get those impressive figures, then you'd uh, need to take time off children. Okay, so it wouldn't be enough to 
teach them really, really well every single day. You know, this is one of the arguments I've got with like the, this, the response to COVID that people sort of went, well, you know, we're great teachers, let's just teach them really well and we'll, we'll close the gaps. They've lost about 1,500 of hours of education. Like, let's go with the fact we we're teaching really well before. Like, teaching really well again, you still lost 1,500 hours of education. You know, that's, and I think that's what calculated to be roughly. Like, so that's just, that's just not, that not kind of enough. And so what you have to do is add time. You need to find time, don't you? And we do that kind of in quite a sort of, um, I don't think there's much thought put into it because of the nature of education and nature of Ofsted at the time and the pressures around outcomes. Then it, there was no sort of, there's no ethics or morals in, in uh, moral sort of like soul searching around just removing time from children beyond their math lesson. You know, and yeah, you know, you'd be spending time within the afternoons. Uh, you know, instead of them doing art, they'd be doing extra maths. Instead of them doing history, they'd be doing extra maths. Um, instead of them going to, uh, you know, maybe their lunch times. Not that we did lunch times, but anyway, the point being, you'd have you'd be intervening at the end of their journey to get them to where you wanted to be. So we had you had this sort of so oddly, like we recognised even then that some children needed more time than others. Like we knew that, that and, and, but what we did is we, we gave them that time in this very short period in, in a sort of reactive way to, to issues that had arisen during that time with us. I don't know, you put these numbers out, really high numbers, and we got lots of, it's really odd because you get lots of kudos for it. You get lots of people looking for it. And it's very easy to get some sort of starstruck by that going, I'm really going massive. To get some of these children to what was level four or then became expected standard, they weren't doing history. And they weren't doing art. And another thing I've spoken to before, and I'm talking about it again, is that, and one thing I learned in my maths was where I looked at intervention in particular, was I interviewed children who were in intervention, and particularly in year five and six and then year two, because I felt that that's kind of where most interventions tend to happen because they're you know, in the key stages. And what I, what I learned from this, and the whole point, and I mentioned this before, we go over it again, the whole point of this sort of like, uh, this, this research around intervention was actually just to examine intervention. But what I learned was that these children were really unhappy. Like <laughs> that they were um, at the end of their time in school and they were out of their classes uh, and away from their friends for a large percentage of the day because they were in a maths intervention or they were in an English intervention or in a science intervention place that existed. And, and, what, and they were being taught in non-ideal spaces and not, and not always by the right person. And I was party to that, you know, I was party to, to this happening. I'd be drawing up the timetables and, and, and Harvey uh, would be in maths in the morning, but you know, be coming in early that morning for extra maths and he'd be out in the afternoon, maths intervention. And all these things would be in place to, to get Harvey to level four, who, you know, and, and he'd come into year six and maybe like, yeah, work here at key stage one level. Uh, and the question then is like, were those interventions in place for Harvey? Like, or were they in, in place for the school? Because then you've got to ask yourself, you know, now and, and what I've really soul searched about is whether well, I was really doing that for Harvey, right? So we, we know about the effect of, of sort of cramming on, on exam performance and then the fall away afterwards, you know, and, and that's essentially what we were doing and what we were guilty of. Like I think many schools at the time is cramming those children so they pass the test that gave us the numbers we wanted so we could tell ourselves they could now do maths when in fact a year later they were back in the bottom set in secondary in year seven because it's all fallen away and that never sat with me so you've got this thing where you've got 
children that are losing time with their peers, sitting in hallways or rooms with nowhere near the resource anyone else has got, missing their curriculum. And, I, and, I, and since I've had children, I've got a little boy, uh, five and a, a daughter, nine, who have been pretty fortunate enough to sort of like go into primary since the shift towards there being, they're, yeah, they're, they're being a wide and rich curriculum. We were doing all this and we were removing time to these children and, and, and giving them this really sort of impoverished experience of school, which, which I would imagine would affect their impression of school anyway. Yeah, school is a place they come into and often they sit with adults, not pupils. And, uh, and they can't talk to their friends about the great P lesson that day because they didn't do it. Or the art lesson because they, they didn't do it. And it may be a subject they actually could do really well in and actually they wouldn't need intervention and they were missing it. Deep in my heart, I kind of knew that we were just pushing these kids over the line. You know what I mean? We were just, we were, and, it, and we weren't really helping like the Harveys of this world. You know, we're actually, we were helping ourselves and our school. And, uh, and, and no doubt that was in response to pressures around Ofsted and, and the pressures around outcomes from, from LEAs and for, and that was the culture, wasn't it? And, and, and so like, with, despite all this, and despite this, I remember, you know, I had, a, I had the DFE come observe me, I remember this, like, uh, with Nikki Ashton, who's an amazing, amazing math teacher who works, uh, uh, worked for Wanzas back then, I'm not sure she does now, but she was in, and she's the one who, took, you know, led the math I was on. And I remember the DFE came to look at me teach and, because as you think, I think they're trying to secure funding for the mast. And, you know, and it's like those sort of kudos on what we're doing. Uh, and I worked for somebody who my head was an ex mast lead for the borough. And it was all really exciting. But I think deep down, I kind of knew it wasn't, I don't know if it was honest. If I'm honest, yeah, I don't think it was honest. I don't think it was fair either. And I remember interviewing these children just really, bo really bothered me. It bothered, and it's still bothered me to this day, really. I think it's bothered me that we were, and now I've got children, that what were they, what was, what was right about that? What was right about taking all that time off them? so late in their education and sort of disenfranchising them in the in the most important years of primary really yeah, ahead of transition for grades that probably didn't mean the you know didn't always weren't always worth the paper they were written on does that make sense like I don't, if i'm honest and if we're honest if you cram a child for a test have you really made them better at that subject maybe a little bit better or is that an honest description of where they're attaining no it's not it just isn't Anyone would know that. We know from my, surely, you know, I know from my own experience of cramming for tests that very quickly that fall away happens, you know, straight after. And I read McCaw's book in 2017 and it just struck a sort of chord, I suppose. Like, I was like, he's not wrong, is he? Like, you know, that, that our perspective, our framing of teaching mathematics is wrong. You know, that, like, we know that these children that couldn't get it will eventually get it, even in a cramming sort of culture, if we spend enough time with them. And actually the belief needs to be they can all get in, they can all, they, they can all do math, but it can't be the way we're doing it. It can't be this system. It's got to be a system where we keep them together and that we have a better sort of setup for, for being more, uh, for getting ahead of the problem. Okay, so if we accept, which I think you have to accept, that some children need longer to learn little things than other people. Yeah. And it's not always the same children for every single step. Is, and that's the other thing to be really wary of is that it ends up just being some children because the, the whole sort of the house of cards falls apart because we leave it too late but all children at some point when they're learning something need a bit longer that's pretty much i think you can accept that um and in hierarchical subjects like uh, and i know that's pretty like a you know an overused term but i, I think we probably agree that mathematics is largely hierarchical that if you learn whatever you learn, whatever what step you learn today uh, if you don't, if you're not secured that, you're going to struggle with that tomorrow. Yeah. 
Um, and I'd also say it's the same with phonics. And whenever I talk about today in this pod, just to, just for those that are interested in this, and I know you know, Chris Suchy's books out and talks a lot around this, but we use this exact same approach for phonics. All the we teach phonics until year six, you know, because it's hierarchical, isn't it? But like learning the code is loosely hierarchical. Um, so I think you know, thinking was like, okay, so what we need to be doing. I read that book and I reflect a lot. Is I think it's a Tom Gary phrase, really, but like stopping the the snowballs forming. So what we're allowing to happen is a small misconception snowball into a larger one, into a larger one, into a larger one, because it's unattended. Right, and the, at the point of the problem occurring in a maths lesson where a child you know, just has a misconception or misunderstanding around a small step in learning, we're not giving them the time then to unpick it. And instead, we're letting that snowball because it then it causes problems with the next lesson and with that sequence, that entire sequence becomes problematic. And that's even within the sequence of learning you're teaching. So let's imagine, as an example, let's imagine like um, the measuring of angles. Okay, as maybe a sequence of learning, which I'd argue probably takes about 15 steps to really teach it. And so let's imagine the, the first step of measuring angles is to make sure they can read, not read, uh, that they're, they're, they're sort of, they understand how to place a protractor at the point of turn. Okay, that's the first thing you need to be able to do. I'd argue the second thing you need to be able to do is then use the, are we going, uh, the clockwise scale to read, meet, to read angles. And then the next, and then secure that before you do the inside scale. Because that's the hard one, isn't it? That's when people, you know, write 65 to the 55. But had they not placed a protractor correctly and you just moved on, then everything falls apart. So, right? like, because, and, then and, then, and you're focused on something else and they won't catch up on the thing you put. Right? So surely then, if we know that and when we accept that you know, children need to spend more time, which we do, because we've, we've been taking it off them in year five and year six in huge chunks at the cost of their wider education and their own, I'd argue, mental health at times, then maybe we just get a bit smart about how we do that. And maybe if, if, and I think one thing to talk about today, if we find a way of giving them more time at the point they've got the misconception, then you won't create the snowballs. And that was my kind of thinking. I kind of thought, okay. And I think a quite a good analogy to this is kind of, if you read like um, Creating a Culture, like Tom Bennett's report on behavior, which is probably one of the seminal things I've read actually. I know it's just a report, but like, it really explains where schools get it wrong. And, and what he'll, what's, and I could be wrong here, but what it's just saying in there is like reactive mechanisms, like, you know, sanction charts and reward charts are, are what, you know, are the thing that schools that aren't effective behavior management uh, focus on. Yeah, they're dealing with the, the, the aftermath and the most effective schools focus on getting ahead of the problem, spend time on routines and creating a culture and establishing strong relationships with children. And if you do that, then what you get is far less people like falling into these reactive mechanisms. And my feeling was similarly, if you get ahead of the these misconceptions, if you deal with them at the point of uh, that they occur, and, and if the steps are small enough in teaching, and, and, and behind this is you know, something we'll talk about, but to teach subject knowledge, then that investment of a small time investment there stops a massive time sort of removal later like that and i've proven this over time like that so i've got this i know this is the case now so what i do know is that, it, that making time for children at the point of error it leads to making less errors and spending less time in intervention at any point in time because you're just not letting things snowball so what do i think mastery i suppose in primary is i think it's i think it's a system that allows children the time they need at the point of learning to 
overcome any misconceptions and stay with the pack? I think it was really clear, you know, very strongly time came across as the most important factor. You know, how that, we started almost bridge into how that might look. You know, I think I'm always really struck by when you describe, you know, the first time I heard you describe your sort of raison d'etre for changing the way you worked. You know, I, I it, it's, it's quite, it's a very powerful, very powerful sort of story that you tell because, you know, I was sitting there going, oh my goodness, you know, this is a, a both completely correct and completely shocking at the same time. You know, how is this, the way that we operate so yeah and um, i think it's a really powerful reason for moving towards that mastery model that you guys have got and but also i think very clearly explained in terms of what are the key things we need in in place if anyone listening with it interesting so what does that what does that look like so i, I could probably just yeah, if i just frame the mechanics of the day of, of how this works in our schools uh, it's, it's a bit hard about slides but i think i've got some slides to show you but so what does that mean i say what do we do and I, I, if i talking through is what this means to schools that's probably kind of it isn't it so um so what we decided and i was very fortunate i, I joined step county trust maybe five six years ago i don't know when it was like Cruiter's teaching learning league for like east sussex <laughs> no i mean not east sussex just the schools we had in east sussex but there were all schools that joined the trust that's often is the case with trusts there's you know for whatever reason not that effective you know so there were either um i think the four in hailsham where we started this Two were special measures. One was double special measures, which I don't think it was even possible, but one was, and the other two were the result of collapse, a collapsed trust. And I was asked to come there and help sort of support moving them on. And at that point, I sort of came in and, and I think I'd, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd been deputy head in, in, at school in Surrey. We'd moved that to, to a good place in my time there. I've been there three or four years. I didn't want to be ahead. I knew, I knew that. I, I was always more interested in teaching learning. And I, and I joined the trust. And, and really, I suppose, you know, the argument would be that the argument would often be that you know this is this is easier when schools are in the wrong place and, that, and I, I completely agree with that I think that, you know if you're a school that's current setup of like years five years six intervention and so on and so forth is getting children you know 90 percent children to the standard then it's really hard to argue we should do this right in it <laughs> like because and it's a lot easier when you've got schools that are, you've got children at 40 percent you know or 50 percent I would say I'm just gonna make a little side here that the current, if we look at like key stage two attainment, and that's sort of three years of recorded attainment, and then the average is like 75%. I think it may have, I'm pretty sure it's the, the, the average, it's probably going up slightly, but the average over three years is 75%. Like that, that is shameful. That, 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 that is all kinds of shameful. And, and so whilst I'm talking on this part, I'm gonna argue that if you follow this approach, You'll never put send, you know, you'll never send 25% of children out of primary, not numerate. You know, that's a, that's an unbelievably shameful percentage. Because that's the, it doesn't matter what the odd school does that gets, you know, like we're getting, you know, we're doing really well. But but if overall the average sort of like attainment is 75% uh, making expect standard, that means 25% aren't. I mean, a quarter of children in this country are not sufficiently numerate to meet that expected standard i think you'd, you'd probably agree i think you know i'm chatting to neil about this like i'd say like that, that mathematics that expected standard mathematics if it's secure it's kind of good in you know life mathematics that's going to set you up pretty well to make some decent decisions in your life you know enough about percentages you know enough about basic you know sort of 
uh, arithmetic and you've got a, a good enough understanding of other sort of concepts to probably go through life and pick the right mortgage and be able to, to you know, uh, perform arithmetic within a, within a role. You know, there isn't, you know, there isn't sort of branching into algorithms. So for most roles, that's really important mathematics. Uh, and I don't think you'd probably need much more than that if you'd secure it, to be honest. But we're, you know, as a country, 25% of children aren't passing. Uh, and our job, and this is why probably I'm quite passionate about this, like, of all of the things is to close, and then maybe people argue it's nonsense, you can't do it, and it might well be right, I'm going to say it's not, it's not nonsense, is to close the gap, right? Is to give those children who possibly got the, you know, the, a lesser chance for other reasons to be not disadvantaged. But, but it's, that, it's generally that 25% of children that we're not helping, you know, and really in mathematics teaching, I think, for, I think really within reason, in any class in most areas in the country, it doesn't take a lot of good math teaching to get 60% of them across the line. You know, and I think math teachers should really, really the focus should be about the 25%. They're the kids that you're trying to make a difference to. That is the point in education, isn't it? Like to, to level the playing field as best as we can. And so that your focus should only be on the 25%, really. Really, the average mathematics teacher will get 60% of children there. Some pretty good math teacher will get 75% of children there. But that's not changing the status quo. That's, that's, that's maintaining the status quo. And I'd argue that 25% of children leaving is, is, like a, is, is embarrassing and shameful. And it's that 25% of children who are the children we're meant to be helping. <laughs> we're meant to be, these are the guys we're meant to be supporting. And the guys we're meant to make a difference to, we're letting them leave with, without the numeracy required to do basic clerical jobs. And above, and I'd say actually the sort of maths you can do at the end of prime if you do it well, it was actually quite good for most jobs. You, you wouldn't need much more in most, most professions. And, and I sort of read around this, and I read quite a lot about sort of the impact of numeracy. I'm, I'm probably off kind of spear hole, but like the impact of, of, of a lack of numeracy is quite significant on, on, on people in later life. And a lack of numeracy counts for, uh, and the percentage probably changed, but let's go with probably the fact it's reasonably true. Like a difference in sort of like, in, in financial quality of life, about 25% as well. And the impact on girls is far higher than boys. Last time I read it, I think it was in Does Numeracy Matter Still? A lack of basic numeracy had a greater impact than a lack of basic literacy. You need a system that supports the 25%, so they're not the 25%. You can't have a system that satisfies making an expected standard and taking 75% of children across the line that probably would have made it with some really average maths teaching and probably and don't need and aren't disadvantaged in the first place. Our job is to make it a reasonably even playing field, isn't it? You know, that's that's what I'd argue. You know, I, I, I'm not saying anyone needs to go into any particular profession. I don't care what people do. Like, you know, that, that's fine. But at least get, let them have the same choices as everybody else. And I think, you know. It's not enough to say, well, you know, our school hits the national standard for maths. That's 75% or whatever it is, 78%. That says that 22% of children can't make it. That's not right. That's just not right. And, and I'd argue this system stops that happening and allows you to focus on the children who's, who need you to make the biggest difference for them, maybe. But, but for whatever reason, not a lack of love at home or anything like that, just for whatever reason, just don't maybe have the advantages that others may have, you know. Um, and so the system itself is really straightforward. Like, so you, when I got to Hailsham and we started to look at the mass provision, which was, you know, the children were it'd be, it'd be beneath 75%, to be fair. Um, I, I, I proposed like maybe making something else, 
maybe working differently on it. I suppose that could we come up with a way of offering children extra time every single day? And, and I argue that if we did that, we close the gaps and stop them forming. Now, I'm not going to say for a second this will solve for every children, child. There are some children that have specific difficulties in mathematics or their or their SAND sort of um, diagnosis just impacts math to a degree where this won't be enough. Okay, we don't get 100% of children passing, but 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 that's a separate that's a separate kettle, that's a separate matter. At no point in all of this am I saying this will this will attend to that. But what I'm going to argue is that for 90% of children this will be enough. And so what we looked at was we said, okay, so to, that means we need to find more time. So if you can make masses longer, we just make masses generally longer so that everybody has more time, but that will take away from somewhere else. Okay. And, we, and remember, we're looking at, super, at phonics as well. So everything, everything I'm saying about maths is true of phonics. Then there's children that don't need the extra time. My feeling is anyone less than is usually at best five or six that, that, that need a bit of extra time. So we said, okay, well, well what could we, is that a necessary sacrifice? Like, okay, that would work, but but we're trading off maybe over a day. If we took an, added twenty minutes to math, twenty minutes to phonics, we're trading off forty minutes, which is probably a lesson, you know, or a large part of a lesson. We're probably trading off a subject every day. Is that is that a deal worth making? Well, how else can we do this? And we said, okay, well, well where could we make sacrifices, and where would we be willing to make them? And, and do remember, like the time in primary school is a finite number. Like no one's extending the school day and anything you do will have a cost. And what you're trying to do is minimize that cost and be satisfied that it's, it's ethically the right thing to do. It, it's the best trade-off for what you're trying to achieve. Now we believe that numeracy and, and literacy were, were, were imperative, they're important and essential for, for them beyond primary and also to them engaging parts of the wider curriculum. So we, you know, there was a belief that we did have to find this time. It's just a question of how we did it. And so we looked at the whole school timetable. Okay, and we said, okay, maybe we just need to redo the traditional timetable. So, you know, wherever that might be. Um, and so we looked at it and said, okay, you know, and when we do this, let's see if we can address some other issues in timetables. You know, well, typical timetable, in my, in my experience, would be things like you'd have like, in, you'd have, you know, writing, then reading, then you'd have playtime, and then you'd have maths, and then you'd have lunchtime, you'd have a lesson, then you'd have assembly, and then another lesson, or you might have assembly at the end of the day. And often you get lessons that are sitting together. That's always a weird one. You've got like one lesson goes into another lesson, you know, without, without a, a physical break. And my experience with that was that when you have that in the timetable, no one ever sticks to it. Like it, it's never stuck to because, you know, they, well, that, that, mess, that science lesson went on a bit. But in, in the meantime, because RE was next, RE is now 20 minutes long instead of 40, you know. And, and similarly, you get that in the morning, you get this overlap, this bleed between one lesson and another. Actually, this what we did was sort of take that on board as well and go, can we just be, you know, if we're trying to spend curriculum time with children, we're trying to give them a, uh, and ensure that they get a, a wide and, and rich curriculum, that actually we ensure, you know, we know that when we say to our subject leads, you have an hour a week for history, when you're designing that curriculum, we spend a lot of time like everybody else designing curriculums, that actually they get that hour a week. Like, so we also thought about that as well. And so we moved to like a really discrete timetable. So I'm just going to sort of like frame this with the fact that we teach Currently, and it's obviously changed since COVID because of the way COVID is, we taught every subject every week. Okay. Apart from DT, which we teach because it works better in like a run uh, in a block at the end of each term because it's just better that way. We changed the school timetable. I was going to explain it to you because it's probably easier. And this, this is it. This is how it works. You know, and, and it allows us to teach all the subjects discreetly for the time that's allotted to them and do same day intervention for both phonics and mathematics. 
So I'm explain it really slowly and a diagram would really help here. So I'll do a presentation this day and I'll, it'll be easy to understand. So our school day looks like this. Mathematics is first thing, and it's for one hour, and that's followed by assembly for 20 minutes, which is followed by reading for 40 minutes, which is followed by playtime, whatever it is, 15, 20 minutes, which is followed by writing for one hour. Okay, and reading would be phonics if it was key stage one, and we'll include phonics key stage two. Then it's lunch, which is 50 minutes, and then it's lesson A in the afternoon, which is one hour, then it's daily mile, then it's lesson two in the afternoon, which I think is 50 minutes, and then it's whole class reading, which is 15 minutes. That's our school day. So first of all, we've got there is discrete lessons. So every lesson is bordered by is bordered so that so that it's time is secured. You have an hour for math, 40 minutes for reading, an hour for writing, an hour for lesson A, and 45 minutes or 50 minutes for lesson B. A lot. And between those things are other things. Okay, they're also part of your curriculum. Offer. So, you know, whole class reading is the end of the day. That's, for every, that's the teacher into the class. Every single day, at, that's as important to us as lesson A and lesson B. And those lesson A's and lesson B's are our foundation subjects. Okay, I'm not going to say which ones they are, but yeah, there's 10 of them in there. So, so that's the timetable. That's the school day. So, hour of maths, 20 minute assembly, 40 minutes of reading, playtime, hour of writing, lunchtime, hour of foundation A, daily mile for 20 minutes in kids, 45 minutes of foundation B, uh, whole class reading. So, first of all, we made the thing discrete. That's really helpful, right? So, if you're a subject leader, it's really helpful to know that the time you've been allotted to your subject is actually the time that's being given to that subject. Because, yeah, one, one of the and I'm sort of going off but I've got a lot of interest in, in, in like other creative areas. And one of, the, one of the things I've always known is, is the difference between like intended curriculum and, and the curriculum that's been delivered in class. And often the problem with that is that subjects get lost, you know, that, that no one's got control over the time being spent on them. Here's our massive progression map and curriculum for history, but actually in reality, the enacted curriculum looks really different because no one's controlled the time being spent on it. We've said it needs to be this big, but actually, Either we're letting teachers timetable their own slots and so that it's getting different amounts of time or it comes after PE. So it's variable whether it happens. So we were like really keen to discreetly sort of like pin this stuff down. So that's, there's one advantage of doing this, right? <laughs> like you, you get to have discrete time on subjects and then you can spend on them correctly. So if I know I've got, and we literally calculate the hours, if I know I've got, you know, X, X weeks a year, um, one hour a week for history, then I know what, what my curriculum should look like. Equally, if I've got 50 minutes a week for one hour a year, I know that this curriculum is going to be, you know, slightly smaller, isn't it? It's going to be slightly smaller than the other one. And so I can, uh, so I can create an achievable curriculum there. You know, what, what subjects you put in each slot, because some subjects get more time than others, is to do with what your school priorities are. So for our schools there, you know, the slightly longer foundation subjects, uh, and they're only slightly longer, but they are subjects that for our demographic we feel are really important so that's re geography history pe and science and the reason for that is is to do with like, the demographic we're, we're working with however art and dt and music and everything else is taught about every week like no one's not getting anything but there's a little bit more time spent on those subjects people can argue that's not the one but that's, that's the choices to make in the school so you get so what you've got is this, this timetable which is now discrete okay with nice set amounts of time so everyone knows what's going on every subject needs a load of what time they've got to spend and uh, what they can expect from pupils over their time in school. Um, and also you've got these discrete breaks. So you stop bleeding, you stop the bleeding between lessons. So you're controlling the time as well. You're not losing it. You're not saying we do this and then actually it's not happened. And then what you've got within some of these breaks is an option to intervene. 
after mathematics is very deliberately assembly and assembly is 20 minutes long should children need longer each day after mathematics to secure that step they stay with the teacher those that don't go to assembly if there are children with phonics that need that extra bit of time each day to secure that piece of code they spend that 20 minutes with the teacher and the rest do the daily mile now the first thing you say is that's costing them they're not going to assembly they're not going to daily mile so here's one thing if they go once they very rarely miss anything else so a child that comes to 20 minutes and misses one assembly is highly unlikely to need to come the next day and i'm not saying this model for one second doesn't come at a cost but i am going to argue this is the minimum you'll spend to secure genuine understanding of mathematics and secure a genuine ability to read so that's how the model works so you do mathematics and we'll talk about how you make sure children in this group and what you do about it in a second. And really, the intervention is not the point. In a nutshell, that's simply mechanically what's going on. And to utilise that time, intervention time well, then, it, then we need to know what the misconceptions are and be able to spend that time wisely. But there's a lot more to this. But on a basic level, that's the timetable. That's the day. That's what happens. I do maths for an hour. And at the end of the hour, if I need 20 more minutes, which is like you know, 33% more time, I'd argue, and I've found to be enough, then I'll get it every single day if I need it. And that means that my teacher can help me secure the thing I've not got. And if it's a small step, that shouldn't be too difficult. Let's not, let's, you know, this, this sits on the prerequisite of teaching things in small steps, like well. And I probably won't need to come tomorrow or again for weeks and weeks and weeks after because I've dealt with the problem that, that, that I had. What I'm going to say very clearly now is that any child that comes to keep up intervention for more than one or two sessions in a row is identified and that's not the intervention for them. And we do have more focused, more intense intervention for those children that need it. Like children that join the school and yeah, when it's not enough, that's not going to make a difference. But for 93, 94% of children, this works. You know, I, I love the way you started with the discussion of the, the cost of time explained the transaction and then brought it right back you know that was an expertly crafted sort of journey through what's what's necessary you know how the light bulb just went and was all yes that transaction is a much more cost effective transaction than normally see i'm not saying this is like rocket science. i'm not really going to talk today about the quality of math teaching particularly i don't think yeah i don't think that's the important thing here i think it's i, I mean it is important but i think that i, I think really like it's it's do you accept that some children need more than time than others? Yes, you do, because you're spending it on them anyway. You're, you're pulling it, yeah, maybe you're not, but either you're satisfied that they're just going to leave failing or you're going to put in a load of crammy interventions at the end of the phase. So you know that anyway. So just spend the time better and you might you know, be more intelligent about how that time is spent. And what you'll find is you do spend less time. The bottom line is you spend less time. You take less time off them. You, do, you make less trade-offs. I've only got a sample of like five or six schools this one, five properly working on safe. We were just introducing a sixth school now of this working, but it is working comfortably in a number of primary schools. One, one condition is that you, it's not going to change the world overnight. Like it's, it's not going to change things. I think my feeling is it it's taken three years for, for it to really like embed and become, you know, for the first year or two there are some children that the gaps are still too big for and that other interventions will be necessary you know good interventions will be necessary i don't think you can't just do this and it will solve everything so it's, it's an odd one to invest get a school to invest time and make the changes that are necessary to, to, to accomplish really because it's um 
you're not going to do it and at the end of the year yeah you got 94 percent and whatever else it like it, it's like a two three year process you know basically it's almost journey through a phase isn't it like you know but by three years any child in your traveling through mathematics in your school or phonics in your school you know for 90 percent of children will not need you to make any dramatic intervention beyond this uh, and that's what i will say so maybe in that sense it's a lot harder to ask the school to consider this if they're doing okay as they are you know like or, or they're or they're in really dire straits and they need to make a big difference soon there are pressures from leas that require that and i i understand that and i am definitely supported by a very brave and intelligent academy trust is a mastery model of schooling possible the primary phase and how should schools approach implementing such a model I've sort of broadly talked about sort of the beats of the school day. I think, you know, as mechanical as that is, it begins with a timetable that, that facilitates it working. Yeah, you've got to have great time. We talk about that sort of trade-off. I think, um, and then it's kind of really, you know, but, but it won't work. That alone won't work without, like, like, specific, like, conditions for growth. It's like a nice terminology for it. It's like, it's a really nice, I don't know how fresh you would wear this. Somebody wrote something about like, yeah, the, the, the ground being sort of fertile enough to grow the plants. Do you know what I mean? Like, the, the, if this is the thing you're trying to do, then the conditions for growth need to be correct to begin with. So, so there, I, I'd say there's a few things kind of need to be in place for this to even work, like to even even consider this. Um, number one, like, and the most important is like absolute backing from the senior leadership team, right? For, for a couple of reasons. Like, the first one is that it's not going to produce results, as I said straight away. Okay, so you just got to believe in it. You've got to believe in the in the purpose of it. You've got to believe in the sort of uh, the, the vision behind it. Like it's you know it's it's not gonna it's not to to, to do what it's you want it to do for the whole school for a year or so, you know, and that you're gonna have to make some compromises in the short term and have to intervene otherwise. But also mainly because the S and T actually have to do the heavy lifting. Okay, so for this to work, and let's talk about that math side in particular, but it works. Um, during our math slot for children to be able to attend that and be in the classroom, their class teacher, that means the rest of the school, let's imagine a two-form entry school, right? whatever that is, 400 odd kids or 300 odd kids, have got to be go somewhere else where the teachers aren't. <laughs> like, like, so you, yeah, if you're gonna have every class teacher work, and it has to be the class teacher, like we know this, You've got to put them with the most expert person. Like, it's not going to work if you have it as well if you have them with a with a different adult. Then, then that means someone else has to do the heavy lifting. So this requires them. So, but in our schools, this requires the SLT to run assemblies on their own. Okay, so that means three hundred children in the hall and be able to manage that assembly without teachers being in the room. And we have a couple of TAs in our schools, uh, not one per, one for every class, and they'll help with the movement. And if you haven't got that, then you just get one of the teachers to move the children and then come back and do it. It's like, it's not like, complicated. They've got to commit to those assemblies every single day and, they get, and they've got to be willing to manage those almost single-handedly. So behind that then is another prerequisite, which is behaviour needs to be in place within the school. And that's another podcast altogether. And I'd love to come back to behaviour. It's another real passion of mine because it's, it's such a prerequisite for learning anyway. But for this to work, then you've got to be able to transition a whole school to an assembly with minimum adults and back with minimal problems. This only works because behaviour is in place. Anyone visiting Hawks Farm or Burfield Academy or Phoenix Academy or Wales Academy will see that, that, that this, this, this hinges upon having first secured behaviour through focusing on routines and culture and uh, relationships with children. Okay. 
Um, on top of that, and this isn't a prerequisite, so you talk about as, um, I'll quote Petsy Creek too much, to be honest, I'm a bit tired of it, but like he talks about things being tight and loose, like what, what do you need to be tight about when you need to be loose about? Well, for this to work, you have to have the, you know, if you use assembly as a slot, then you've got to, you absolutely need to have just the, the leaders taking that assembly, and if possible, helping the transitions around school. So the other leaders committing to that. Also, it's useful to, to ensure that teachers also get a break from learning. So in, in our schools, they don't do playground duty. Because in this assembly where they might normally diffuse and, and, and have a break between two lessons, they're not getting that. And so no one does playground duty in our schools. Okay, which leads on to an, because then when it, after reading, they've got some time to refocus. You can't just be making them teach all day without break. So that's one sort of prerequisite, like a full SLT backing, because they're gonna do the heavy lifting. And, and so when we, that means them running assemblies, supporting those transitions, and in our schools, running the play times as well. That's a big commitment from that senior leadership team. And you're only gonna get that if you believe this is gonna work and it's valuable. There's no point doing it otherwise. There isn't, there isn't like someone being tightly loose, it doesn't work if you don't do that. It just doesn't work. So you need behavior in place. You need absolute commitment from SLT and because they're gonna heavy lift this. Then sort of thirdly, you've got to make sure the teachers are confident enough and capable enough to deliver these interventions well. So you need to remove all the chaff on the day. You need to let them spend their time thinking about mathematics and planning mathematics and considering what misconceptions are coming and having ownership of the maths in front of them. Now, this isn't this, you know, you can use a scheme of work time by me, but we don't use a scheme of work, not, not prescriptive scheme of work. And we have no after school clubs. Right? Another thing we don't have, we have after school clubs. We have the staff don't run them. It's optional, they can if they want to, but we generally don't because it's about giving them time to think and prepare and to make sure those, the questions they ask, the examples they give tease out the misconceptions so that they can address them. There's no point like teaching a lesson that doesn't tease out the misconceptions. So you don't know if children have got misconception yet. So make sure the lessons are real plan. And for that to happen then, I suppose, and this is, you know, you need to have a, a really good CPD professional development offer for your teachers. Okay, so it's all right giving them all this time, but how are you gonna sort of help them improve? Well, I think I think it's probably the most probably the most revolutionary thing step at least do. And for me, is that um we have like we don't have one CPD session every week. So we don't have the, the, the usual sort of like behemoth hour, 20 minutes on a Tuesday, you know, which is painful to be in sometimes after a long day, like hard work. It also robs you of the rest of your day to do any thinking. So really you're not gonna do anything but anything the next day, you're sat in a meeting for an hour, 20 to one stake body or whatever else, a valuable thing, but for a long time. So instead we have two 35 minutes a week and never more than that. And so on a Tuesday and Thursday, we have two short CPD sessions. So you finish teaching, uh, whatever day, time it is, and at 3.45, um, we have short CPD sessions. Okay, so automatically, we've now got double the amount of CPD sessions. CPD sessions. You could argue, well, it's no different because you spend the time differently. I'd say it is different, because that's wasteful. And what it allows us to be is responsive to our teachers. If your data is telling you that teachers need more support with, I don't know, supporting like teaching fractions then you can immediately respond to that so of a term if you think about it, you've got in the short term you've got six normally you'd have six cpd sessions and in many schools they're booked out way in advance the whole year's planned out well six of ours will be the other six won't be and they use responsibly to what we see in the classroom to give support where we need it 
and they may be responsive, responsive to the whole cohort, but to all the schools, or, or they may be used to allow people time to engage in their own CPD. You know, and I don't want to sell complete maths to you. I'm really trying to avoid being, but yeah, one of the, I think one of the best things about complete maths maybe is, is kind of their, is, is their, what's it called, teacher CPD college? Netflix and maths, basically, that we can provide that time for people to engage in a video about something they need to engage in. That's about trusting your teachers, isn't it, really? <laughs> it's about trusting your teachers, but it's about being, also having this really responsive PD, sort of, which has its kind of like main goals. So you still, yeah, you can still follow the sort of like the school academy and school improvement plan and, 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 and push through the things you want to push through, but also have space to be responsive to the classrooms and support where you need to, either as a group or in small groups or or letting people individually sort of like improve their own their own craft, I suppose. And I strongly argue this is the best model for doing FIDE because I thought initially, well, it's the same time, you know, you, just, you get no more accomplished. Absolutely nonsense, you get way more accomplished. It also allows you, you know, it allows you to break things down smaller. And, it's, and what you often find is you, when you've got six sessions a term and one of them has to be this and one of them has to be that, that like you go, I'm gonna do one on fractions. You do an hour 20, you must have done this. And you're like, you've done the whole of fractions in an hour 20, right? And only a little bit of that has gone in. And we know about good professional development, it has to be ongoing and persistent and so on and so forth. And, and this allows much more for that, much more flexibility in the schedules to do that. So it might be you look, you know, you, over a term, you, you look at mathematics and you speak to teachers about it. Like, what do you, what do you want to help with? You should always do that. I don't think it's just about learning more. Yes, it's good to you know, walk the schools, talk, talk to the kids, talk to the teachers and have a look around. And if from that, you might, it might be really clear that people need some support with checking for understanding, right, in mathematics. And so then you may use that to plan like an eight session program on, on techniques. And you've, you've got the room in your CPD schedule to do that because you've got this room, you've got this elasticity, this room to move because you've got double the amount of sessions. You know, you don't need an hour call for everything, but less time is almost better in my, in my view. You can, do, you can be more particular about things. Um, and then finally, I suppose you, you just need to have the right culture in the classroom thing. So you've got the leadership fully supporting the mechanism working school working hard to make sure behavior lets it work the teachers able to improve their practice so that they can use the time as, as well as possible and finally you need the children to be willing to say i got it wrong you know you've got to you've got to absolutely like create that culture where it's okay to be wrong and to know that you'll be helped like in a lesson i think most people kind of know that but mathematics is really binary isn't it like you're right you're wrong and actually like and that's why people love it i think because like it's that immediate success, like ping, 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 like all those hits, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But equally, like, you know, you, you, it can also, because it's quite fragile, sort of like, you know, self-efficacy, then also you can feel quite bad if you don't think, you know, if you don't think there's a way out of it. Um, and I think, you know, you've got to really create that culture in the classroom where errors are celebrated and, and we engage with errors and we deliberately set the lessons up to, to, to bring out errors and, and that's not something to be sh sort of shamed about. You know, going to a keep-up session is a positive thing. Like, you know, kids don't mind that. They feel like it, I'm there to be helped. And I think, so that's not, they're no small things I've talked about. Are there probably, you know, I've quite, talked about some quite significant things there in the need to be in place this model to work. Um, and probably could do a podcast on all of them, to be honest. Like, you know, I think, I think you should, you know, I think it'd be really interesting to speak to about motivation if you get a chance, because I think it's a fascinating area like about behavioural science, I guess, that we probably need to know more about. And he does a really good job of taking you uh, quite a few steps on that journey. Uh, definitely enlightened me around it, to be honest. But that doesn't mean you have to wait for more to be there to, to get it working. Like you can work things alongside it. So I'd, I'd, I'd kind of say they're 
they're those sort of preconditions for growth for, for, for to work it's then about like okay so if you've got this time in a lesson at the end of a lesson how do you make sure you use it well first of all you've got to make sure that like the steps in learning are correct and sequence well uh, so you use a good schema work for that if you if you don't, but also spend time working with teachers on, on sequence in mathematics. Uh, I'm not saying every step takes a lesson, but you just get the steps, like most 15 steps over eight lessons, doesn't really matter, just understand the steps. Um, and then what you've got to be able to do is to know who needs help when. So if we look at a basic math lesson, if I do something, we do load together, and then when you when I'm happy, you do some on your own. And then if we're happy with that, we can go a bit deeper with that same step. So if we take that as being like, basic model then it's just about okay how do i know who knows what at any point in the lesson and this is this is where like it's it gets to be quite forensic like we've got some really forensic assessment points because all this makes no difference if you're sitting with other kids and you're at that point you're trying to pick the, the problem but you need to you want to know the problem as soon as you know the problem we've got the balance we work really hard to get the balance of the i we you correct so for my, in my experience when this kind of goes wrong in math teaching is that everyone overlooks the we aspect of of it like the ratio is all out of sync you know it's like you know three one two like you know lots of i very little bit of we if you even bother and then and some time practicing so let's all get the sequence right so the i the instruction uh, and make sure you cover a number of examples and lots of variation should maybe be five ten minutes if you're if you're th five minutes right if your thing's correct the we section should be significant we should be running through a variety of models, beginning with children working in pairs and moving towards them working independently in the week section. Okay. And we're looking at like 15, 20 minutes here, give or take. Like spend time, like just going through lots and lots and lots of examples. So you're starting to, you know, and that, that's about considering your examples in the first place. And I think mathematics is all about examples. Like, like, and then the U section is also quite long, right? You need to give them enough time to practice, but not too much time. So if I was going to talk about ratios, instead of being like three, one, one, I'd argue it should be like one, three, two or something. If you think about how that model should work. Let's imagine I've modeled something really well. I've modeled how to, I don't know, uh, measure an angle on the clockwise outside, you know, scale. Um, it's quite complicated. It'll take five minutes doing that. I'm then going to do some with the children. Okay, to begin with, I want them to be um, working in pairs, collaboratively. Collaboratively, you know, there's, there's a huge amount of evidence around the, the impact of collaborative learning and, and peer peer to peer support. Uh, so the, at the beginning of that, they're going to work through some really well chosen examples. A lot of them, not two, a lot of examples, and that really drives me mad. Like one example, and then you often move on to independent, and they do the independent work. It looks nothing like the example I've just done. Like, like the thing you teach should look like the thing they're going to do together and we should look at the thing they're doing the right so lots of examples maybe like 10 examples right um with some variation there to make sure like you know it's 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 challenging them uh, and at that point we have like think pair share okay now this is proper pink think pair share where the teacher actually moves around the classroom so think pair share is only useful if you listen to children talking the point of assessment is to check all the kids all the time right like no you no proxies in math lessons like you need to know what every kid's thinking really so I've modelled how to do this on my, on my visualizer. I spent a long time modelling it. Uh, you know, the children have listened. At the start of that, they've repeated it back to me. At the start of the we section would be the end of my section. And now I'm going to like see how they go with it. To begin with, they're going to be doing proper thing fair share where one does it and then explains to the other one what they've done. Okay, and at that point, as a teacher, 
I move around the room and I listen to what they're doing. I don't engage, I just listen to their conversations and I watch what they're doing. And I don't have a random route around the classroom. I have a set route around the classroom. So I see every single child. And I might not get to ask every child in the first suite, but I'll put another example up, I'll walk again. I'll be listening to what they're doing. So they have, and I'm giving them time to think, and then they're gonna have a go and explain to their partner and explain back. So important, this aspect, like massively overlooked. And I'm not gonna intervene. Do you know what I'm not gonna do? Stand at the front of the classroom. What's the point in that? And then asking for three kids to explain it. Like there is some value in that, but all I ever know is what three kids think. If I actually walk around and listen, I can harvest huge amounts of data. And really early on, start adapting my examples on the board and picking out those misconceptions, having children you know, address them for each other. So that's the first stage of the week section. Think, pair, share, so powerful. If you actually listen to children, it's beyond useless if you stand at the front. I, I, yeah, and after a long time, my career was me standing at the front going, right, think, pair, share, click, you know, and invariably give them no thinking time either, like no wait time, just crack on. Like give them proper wait time, let them have a go at it. At the paired point, walk, listen to every child, you know, and over a number of examples, you'll be able to listen to every child and start to adapt your teaching accordingly. And you'll start to see success. And then you go, okay, so, all right, so now I need to move them to work independently in, in the we section. So I do one, you do one, you know? So at this point, what well, I probably didn't make this clear, like we'll be using like um, problem pairs on the board. So I'll do one and then, then we'll go through one on the, on the other side. So I don't know what problem pairs are, like here's a whiteboard, there's a line down the middle. Here's my example, my work example here, and here's their version. Yeah, that they're gonna have a go on next to it and then we'll work it through together. So you do some independent ones now. Uh, and so now I do the same amount probably of independent examples. So I'm like, okay, you have done your whiteboards now. And then we're gonna do sort of like, then it's gonna about like show me boards up, whiteboards up. And top tip, which I sort of thought I've shared everybody now, is like at this point you want to see every single child. So you, it's no good to go like show me whiteboards and they'll come up in long wave and they'll put them down. You don't really read them. Like get them to come up at a row. Like okay, okay, give them appropriate time to answer it. So think about how long what the wait time should be. The wait time for questions depends on the question. Like how long you need to think about three times five is different to how long you need to think about seven cubed. So it's not, there's no point having like a default wait time. Like give appropriate wait time. Don't ask them too early to put their boards up, you know, like, and then the boards come up, but get them to come up in, in rows or pods or whatever you do it, like, so back row up, read those, down. Middle row up, read those, down. Front row up, it's like forensic. Okay, so there's a, there's a common misconception. Let's do another example. Let me work it through for you and explain that to you again, or maybe one of the children will model it. Repeat, 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 repeat. Okay, until those boards are starting to show you 80% success and more. Generally, they will. Like if you teach something small enough, you'll get easy to get that. And if you're teaching it well enough and you've spent enough time in the weed section, you'll get that. At that point, when you're starting to see success for most of the classroom, you're going to move most of those kids to independent work. Okay, so we're looking at minimum 80%. If it's less than 80%, you need to reteach it, you need to recycle that whole lesson. You might, yeah, and be, on, and be willing to do that, be willing to. To, to rejig the lesson. If it's not, if you've got 60% of getting it, you're going to need to go back to the I stage. But otherwise, let's say now, okay, we're getting most children successful. They've worked really well in pairs. They're working really well independently. Now it's moving to some practice. And we might be like 30 minutes into lesson now. So there's some stash amount of practice now uh, of questions similar to those I've done, not different. So it's be bonkers, wouldn't it? Right. And <clears throat> at that point, you're going to start working with the children that are struggling. Okay, you're going to intervene now. So when we talk about that extra time, the extra time is not the only time they're getting. They're getting a teacher immediately. 
Okay, you know, bring them to the front, and you start to work through some examples with them. And you've already got a sense of misconception, start to unpick it. You might find that you've solved one of those in the first five minutes, off they go back to independent work. And we'll check on them in a second. We're not waiting to end the lesson for this. It's not like a, we are intervening earlier. But that extra minute means it probably you'll get everybody there in the end. So I would then, I've got four kids that are really, I've got struggling a little bit. I've teased out the misconception kind of because I'm questioning my examples. We're likely to unpick un 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 that one. And I'm going to bring them to the front and start working with them while the rest crack on. Okay. I'm going to work them for five, 10 minutes while the rest are cracking on. And what I'm going to do now is, okay, right. You're looking all right this. Here's a few examples. Have a go at those. I'm going to go and check on the rest of the class. And it's the same as like Think Best Share. You follow the route around the class, right? And this is called, and this is the mod thing, it's called error tracking. This is a, it's a game changer for marking, right? So here's my route around the classroom. I go like row A, row B, row C. On their task sheet or book, well, I'd say sheets is quite useful. Make it really clear where they put their answer because you're going to mark them really quickly now. So having like random places for answers makes your job really difficult. So have a box to put the answer, make it really clear what, what the answer is. And then you have a copy of the sheet with the answers on it because that's a really clever thing to do. So you're not having to work out on the way around. This doesn't work for things like roll three dice and make an addition calculation, which is why I don't really like them, because you don't really know what you're asking kids to do. Uh, so I'm much happier with you being in charge of the examples they're doing. So here's my sheet. There's their sheet. And all on the classroom, I'm going to mark. And I'm not going to stop. Traditionally, what we do is we, we mark, well done, 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 well done. Oh, I'm stuck. And you stop and talk to someone. And then the lesson runs away with you and you never get around the rest of the class. It's all, and we don't do that. It's really hard not to do that to begin with, but we just mark everyone. And what we do on our sheet, we tick, 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 dot, whatever it might be. Da, 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 da. And anytime there's a misconception, we just tally it and make some notes. So what you're doing is creating a little bar graph on your task sheet of where the problems are. And then when you finish your loop, you might have to do two to, to do it. It takes about three minutes, time this, to mark a whole class. You then go to the board and reteach if there's a, a common misconception and you loop the process. And you may just then give them a set of questions around that, independent questions around that. And the children know that. So to begin with, they're like, oh, well, you stay and help me. But they very quickly realize that you are going to help them. You're just going to see everybody first. I think this is like a game changer. Like in, in, in everything's, everyone's marked, everyone's seen it, everyone's misconceptions are addressed. I think, you know, for a long time, most of my career, I, I'd start marking and get stuck with a kid, right? Okay. Number one, most of the kids doing this shouldn't be getting stuck because they've got to this point where you think they can work independently. But even if they do, because something slipped, like we're going to deal with it as a whole class back at the front. It's going to benefit them. It's going to benefit the kids you're already working with because they're probably going to have that misconception as well. And it means you're totally in control of who knows what all the time. That's what you need to be. And then we finish this area tracking and we deal with any small misconceptions. We might run that process again. We might have to like loop with a particular misconception, model it, do some together again, you know, and then send them and write and be willing to write some questions yourself until everyone's kind of successful. In the meantime, I'm, you know, I'll go back to work in my small group. I might not be able to set them up an independent task. I might give them some more input. You know, if, if there's lots of success in the classroom, I'll take them deeper. We'll then go to the next, you know, we'll extend their understanding. I won't go into depth in this session if that's okay, because that's that's another thing I've talked a long time about is how you create depth in the math lesson. Uh, we've made some real changes to that and how we do it. And really, I'm really, really into like method selection tasks and interleaving as being the most potent thing you can do for another day. I think that one. Um, but let's imagine. So, so now I'm in a classroom where I kind of know what everyone knows all the time. 
you know, and as, as best I can, I'm keeping everybody kind of in the right place. Um, you will naturally take children deeper, they will succeed and they will go deeper and the rest of us now do that and, you, and we would teach that depth. And at the end of the lesson, we, we will use some, like a, a hinge point question. So what often happens is you take children deeper as they stop feeling success because it gets harder, doesn't it, right? And you can forget who knows what, like at the end of the lesson, right? Well, at the end of the lesson, we'll have like an MCQ couple of hinge point questions, you know, say a multiple choice question based on the new learning, not the deep stuff, not the stuff that's gone deeper, just the thing you taught them that they really have to secure today to understand tomorrow in the, in the best possible way, the, the wrong answers are the misconceptions. And you get the children to do those. And that's really powerful at the end of the lesson. And it's like an exit ticket, isn't it? So that re that's, reminds them that they could do it because a lot of children can lose a little bit of faith as they're getting really deep and it's getting difficult. It reminds that they were successful. It also reminds you, it also tells you that some of these children have actually forgotten the thing I taught. Okay, so at the end of the lesson now, I now know where everybody is. I now know who should join the intervention. I know what the misconceptions are. Many of these children I've worked with already, so I've got a real understanding. But even for those that have just sort of like, you know, forgotten in, 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 as the lessons progress, I also know that, that they, did, they do need some more time just to, to feel successful at that again. So now I know that these five children need to stay for intervention. So I have some more time. I know what their issues are. I know, uh, and I may well be working on it. I know where to go next with them. So when I have this 20 minutes, I'm using it well. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not assuming, it's a really weird one where you assume that everybody was successful in the initial task in mathematics, initial, that, that as it gets deeper, they kind of remember the thing they were, they'd got successful at, and sometimes they don't. It kind of falls apart because they start focusing on deeper tasks, more sophisticated tasks. So actually, like to pick up some of those kids that kind of like slipped a little bit. And then, but generally, what we find happens is like 85, 90% of children, 95% children are successful in the, in the exit ticket, and our suite of data taken from like think per share and from whiteboards and from error tracking supports like that. And we only need one or two children to, to spend the extra 20 minutes with. Often some of the children that found it difficult earlier or been working with. Um, quite often, more often than not, nobody goes to say, there's no need for anyone to sustain their keeper. Because the whole system works so well that often like they're all right. You know, it's only on the trickiest steps in the sequence that you get a few. You get really high success rates because you're unpicking when, it, when it's doing, you know, like if you're treating measuring angles, right? It's all, all the, the tricky step is when you use the inside scale, isn't it, right? And it's going anti clockwise, you need anti clockwise angles, right? And, and so you might be get 100% success day one, day two, and on that one, you get some, yeah, you get some uh, predictable challenges because people are, are, are used to reading left to right and not right to left. Um, and then you see the tension, you know what you're doing. That's 20 minutes and you're going to practice with them. Yeah, you're going to practice, 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 practice. But it won't be the first time you've spoken to them. Like, you know, you, you, for many of these, you've been working with them for 20 minutes anyway. Weirdly, it's not actually that busy, same intervention most days. In fact, many days it's not. And what we said to teachers is, and what one thing we did before was we, like, if nobody came to it, nobody came to it. But what we kind of felt was, over time, we've decided that actually we should use that time. And so for those children that are, secure but we could take them a deeper we do that now so we do pick a few children to work a bit deeper on or to use that time to maybe address some some fluency sort of like gaps or, or provide some fluency practice and that's it and then they sit in intervention and then at the end of the intervention we always like make, we didn't used to do before but now we make a little note they've been in it over time as a teacher if a child's pinging into that group too often then then a different intervention is required like if they're in and and, and you can lose track of that <laughs> i didn't talk about and talk about very quickly when we we're marking error tracking we have three symbols we mark with I think this is uh, this is something we've changed. So traditionally, you'd have like 
whatever you'd have, you'd have success and a lack of success when you use symbols. So we, we've kind of moved away from that. So we've, we've got like tick, you got it right. Like dot, you've made a mistake, but like you can sell correctly. So that's a, yeah. And I think it's the dash we use, which is I'm going to reteach this because I think three symbols is more useful. <laughs> like, or if you've got kids spending time on something they can't actually correct because it's like a fundamental misconception. So one thing we do with error tracking is like, if we're going to ask them to respond to our marking as we bomb round, we only want them to respond to stuff we think they can respond to and don't want them to waste time and feel bad trying to do something they just don't understand. Yeah, so we make it really clear now what we think is a, is a, is a mistake, a slippage in their number facts, or like a just a not repeated mistake. You can probably correct that. We might yeah, not talk to them. I go like, look at that number there. Uh, and we also, but we have a symbol that says, okay, I'm going to reteach this, that giving them that reassurance that I know you didn't get this. I'll be at the board in 10, five minutes. I'm going to unpick it for you. So I've got really forensic levels of, it's a bit anal, but I think it's necessary. If you're going to take this time with children, like you need it to be, well-spent time you know and and so we have like pretty forensic levels of assessment useful assessment for our lesson but it really empowers the teachers and the children you know in understanding who knows what at whatever points and how you can help um and and you know the, the same day intervention time isn't isn't the place we rely on to catch those children up you know we're doing work throughout the lesson but it is a bit of space to keep working with them if they need it. Uh, and also just really interesting, we found it like to, to, to secure those kids that kind of it slipped from, who've been really successful, we kind of forgot how to do it for some reason. You know, something that happens in it, like you get into really complex and you, you kind of forget how to do the original thing because you now you're so overloaded by, you know, this sophisticated problem. So that's kind of like a, a talk through like how it works, I guess. It's probably, probably quite a long talk through how it works. Um, and I'll do some, I'm going to hopefully do some presentation on this. Uh, I promise Mark McCoy I'd do one, but uh, we've got some, lots of people to visit the school, so I'll definitely do one for them. Uh, and, and I'll use some diagrams that we find useful. <laughs> but because I'm talking around pictures here, but that's that's kind of the process. Like really key, really important, really well done assessment points based on really well designed questions, based on lots of variation in the examples, uh, and based on not using anybody as a proxy, like like knowing what they all know all the time, and, and that that way you use that time really well. And that way, we very rarely get children behind. And, and yeah, so that's that's kind of it. So that makes sense. You use the word forensic, and that's absolutely the word I was going to use. And the whole, everything you've described in this chat has been, you know, it shows how forensic and how deeply you've thought about how all the pieces come together. So I reckon people need to, particularly that last section, sit with a, a note pen and piece of paper and make notes about what those pieces are and how you guys have melded them into this really effective system. I think my next question then would be, what, what are the key markers that let us know that a mastery model of schooling is working well? I suppose you can just about data, but data is probably really, really a key marker in school, wouldn't it? So like, I don't know what you call data, but um, if we talk about sort of quantitative data, I guess, then at intervention level, what you'll see over time is less children come to intervention. You're preventing the snowballs forming. So actually what you'll see is when you first introduce this, children come in more regularly to intervention, but over time, you'll see a, a quite a significant drop in, in how often children need the extra time. So that, that's been a really interesting mark for us. Like something that, you know, we found we were spending lots of time with lots, you know, with children every day. Now there's lots of days when there's no one needs to come, you know, and, and that's, that's a really pleasing thing. Like that's a really pleasing thing. Um, so I say that's, that's, a, that's a key 
a key sort of trend you'll see happening. You'll see children, initially lots of children coming uh, and uh, over time, far less children coming, far less regularly, far less often. I would say what you'll see is more parity in your end of year like summative assessments or your end of term assessments. So what you'll start to see is that it, that it evens out across the school and it's a quite a high level. So to begin with, it doesn't look like that, but over time, you know, it's not 90% in year six and 17 year five. 17 year four and 72 year three it's 90% in every year group like that's the big marker isn't it like that's mastery isn't it like that's what you're trying to achieve because they're staying together which means then pretty much all being successful at maths every year and I think that's the big and that's and we we saw that happen to our data in our schools you know, in the Hawks Farm was the first one we introduced this to and everything everyone else has kind of staggered a year later but that's what started to happen. So you stop, you, you, you've got complete parity in the data across the year groups and really positive sort of parity. Really, you'll see it in, in the, like the children. So we, when we look at, when we, I guess, look at data, when we look at things, then we do two, three things. We, I suppose four things really. We look at lessons, we look at the data, we talk to children, we talk to teachers. And what you'll see is, is the teachers Actually, two children, the, the children enjoying mathematics and being confident in mathematics. And that the mathematics is something that they enjoy and look forward to. And, and I'd say that actually it's the same for teachers. You, it, it very quickly becomes a really positive subject in your school and one in which all children believe they can do it. And, and, and not falsely, not like it's like, I believe in it, but we're not going to help them, but you'll see... Um, a change in attitudes. And I think when Mark visited, like what was it last term, that's I think what struck him most. It's just like the kids' positivity towards mathematics, like universally. Another thing you'll notice, and one of the things that comes out is, is your, your, where you do have to intervene at a more intense level, okay? Where children are joining the school or for whatever reason they've got other difficulties, you're doing it with the right children. And you're spending your money and your time better. So I would say before, there were lots of children receiving quite significant intervention around mathematics that, that really hadn't, wouldn't have required it as a better model in the first place. And one thing you'll find is that there will still be children that need a different intervention. We use a connecting maths concept, which is kind of the angle and stuff, but really amazing sort of direct instruction, interleave sequence. That's an amazing program, very expensive, but a really amazing program. We use that with those children that need, you know, further support. And it's quite expensive, I suppose. And expensive for them in their time, expensive for us because it's, it's money that you spend. But but you're spending it well, like you spend it on the, the kids that need it, like as opposed to as opposed to having any other. So you, and you get smaller groups, aren't you? So like because there's less kids, like everyone's worrying about, then you you can do spend more time on fewer children. So actually, weirdly, like it, it allows you to. To do a better job of, in, of intervening at a more a more intense level because you're just intervening with the right kids basically. Um, so they're interesting that we've noticed. So there's things we've noticed. I can't, you know, I don't know if it's. I, I'm I'm sure there are other markers. Like so, I'd say like the an evening out of the sort of like attainment and actually at a high level, it allows you to deliver better, more appropriate interventions to those that really do need it that have like some difficulties. 
um, and an overall kind of like cultural shift around learning, maybe in general, a belief around the subject. You know, and I think that's an easily overlooked data, isn't it? We tend to think in SLTs mainly about data, data, I think it's summative stuff. But for me, like the, the thing is really about what do kids think about maths? That's kind of the thing, isn't it? What do they think about reading? Like, what do they think about themselves as mathematicians? What do they think about themselves as readers? One thing we haven't talked about saying is, well, we would like to talk about this in the future, but there's an opportunity just like, like depth in mathematics. I know you talked about it before, but like, um, and problem solving in particular, I'm a bit fascinated by problem solving. You know, one thing we don't do is, like we don't hierarchically deliver fluency reasoning problem solving anyway. So, so what we've got is a lot more children uh, engaging in, in the sort of more, the, the beautiful part of mathematics, which is problem solving. Like, that's kind of the end goal, isn't it? Like the, all the other stuff is to, to do the problem solving. Uh, and you get children that are really good at that and have time to do that sort of stuff. You have time, we have time in our curriculum, it's not worrying all the time. To, to now we're just starting to look at the teaching of non-routine problem solving. Um, for another day that one, but like, but for non-routine problem solving and um, like is a, is a problem with kind of mastery in, in the sort of term of like, you know, it can be a problem is that it can disguise poor math teaching. It's that well, they need another day, they need another day, they need another day. Like, like you know, it can often because it's just not been, you know, it's not very good math teaching. Like, you know, there is a curriculum to get through. <laughs> like, yeah, so I think you just have to be, you know, also be aware that this doesn't mean that you can spend three days on everything. You still got, you still have to have a high standard of like mass planning and you still need to be happy to be, you know, have the best chance of being successful every time you teach it. This shouldn't, you know, create a culture whereby we can say, well, they need the whole class need the day on this whole class need the day on this, whole class need the day on this, which is in fact disguising a poorly prepared mass sequence. You know, you, you've got to, there's a danger that can happen. You know what I mean? Basically, you're just spending that time on not very well prepared maths, right? You know, like, Kids do need an extra day if you didn't teach it very well and you didn't think it through, of course they do. Like, there's still an expectation teachers teach good maths. Uh, and we try and support them. We talk, we're, we're really hard to support them doing that. Another marker then would be like, we've got almost zero tough staff turnover across five schools. Like, there's almost zip, I think it's almost none in five years. Like, so happy staff, always good. You know, that's always that's a real bonus. Happy staff who get to spend their time thinking about subjects and getting better. You know what I mean? Like, that's good. That's, I think that's a, an interesting sort of marker of this. They don't walk around that sort of like, it's really hard, isn't it? When you're in like key stage two and you're in year five, and you've got a child that's working year one. That's really, really, every day that's really, really upsetting. Uh, if that child's been left to sort of like drift away because you don't really know what you're doing with them and you can't teach no own lesson. There's less of that. So there's less of that sort of like, sort of like constant guilt of not being, not helping the way you are. You feel like as a teacher, do you know what you feel like? You feel like you're doing your job. Okay, I'm helping people when they need the help and it's making a difference. So I think there's it's just, you know, you, I think there's a bigger, probably a bigger story here about what it, how it helps teachers feel about their profession. And, um, and, and there's something powerful, isn't there, about your leaders saying to you, I'm going to give you as much time as possible to teach children in the best way you can, because that's why I think it's important, because that's, that's the thing that's going to make the biggest difference. And I think it's, it's, there's a sort of wider sort of meta sort of story there about how it, changes the culture in schools about so it moves away from being interventions are something we do you know in schools when we need to uh, and towards like this is what we do this is what we're about and I think that's really powerful yeah I I, I really like the the term model of schooling because that's exactly what it is it is a whole scale approach that you've sort of demonstrated can have massive impact you know, both in this interview and just through your work over the last number of years, 
what came across really strongly was the idea that high success rate in summative assessments are the byproduct of a really high quality maths lesson or maths education as opposed to the focus of. And that, and that comes across really, 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 really well. You've given me a list of maybe six, seven podcasts that we're going to record in the future. And I, I've got plans for 20 years of Tadapi. So there will be plenty of time in the future. Yeah, if you want to do that, I'd like to talk about method selection. I'd like to talk about routine, non-routine problem solving. So they're the things that really fascinate me at the moment. And obviously early maths, we haven't talked about one thing. I'm just going to say lastly, is behind all this is an understanding of where you put staff, right? So if you want, let's think about early years. I'm unbelievably passionate about early years. Uh, and one thing I'll say is like, you know, there's some really weird sort of like parity booking the staffing in schools and that we go, everybody gets a TA, everybody gets like front load the staff where it matters. Where's that same day intervention going to happen most regularly? Uh, it's going to happen in early years in year one. So another thing we've, we've thought about really hard is, is like how our staffing's loaded in the school. So where we can get more bodies in the classroom, having more conversations, then, then we, we, we push that towards our early years and to year one, uh, where that's, you know, um, and that's just probably a conversation at the time, but I just think like, and I will say with all of this, this is a work in progress, right? It's been going on for like three, four years and it didn't start with this model. Like we've got really, really, like the forensic sort of assessment is something we work really hard on doing. I think the overall model now is where it is and it works really, really well. What we start to now unpick is kind of like depth. We'll probably think we've probably worked on that quite a lot, but now what I'm really concerned with, because you know, we've decided this is, something, is, is like our children's access to problem solving so that's kind of our current conversations in the schools and we don't think this is like you know like this is how we've got it right everybody else got it wrong i don't think that's all i just think this model works really well for, for quite children different demographics and quite different primaries of different sizes um and it does the right thing by children but i'm not saying the schools don't do something different that works just as well i'm not saying that's the case um i'm sure there's people with better ideas than this like lots of people with better ideas than this this is you know i just know and it's not my idea. I just need to name lots of people there because there are lots of people who are part of this. So obviously, obviously, I've been quite a big part of this, but also Sam Thomas, uh, who is, I think he's at Mr. T or something on Twitter for those at my, Sarah Cochran, uh, Jeremy Meek, who's the executive head teacher across the four schools. He's the guy that backed this. Amazing leader, amazing leader. And then all the heads have got uh, Dee Hughes, who's the EUFS kind of expert as well, head of sort of lead for EUFS to the whole trust. To make who's got it working in early years to make sure the early years is doing its job and and uh and then we've got sort of lead drink water and danny king and lots of lots of people involved but it's not just me and, and tom gary like you know and the guys i work with like tom tom and i talk maths and and you know gonna be like that like, yeah, yourself and, and and chris such and neil and and, and shannon and so on and so forth it's, it's lots of conversations that have got us to where we are you know and people saying things to me that made me go away and think uh, and then, then, then there's the schools themselves supporting it happening and being brave enough. And what then I'll probably finish by saying we've been through quite a few offsets, right? Like either side of the, the framework change. And this has been met universally with like really positive feedback. We haven't had a single offset in the last few years in, in East Sussex without outstanding for leadership, outstanding for behavior and so on and so forth. Like uh, all our schools are good and outstanding. And they weren't, they were measures and stuff. And part, and we, we delivered this without the data to Ofsted in two Ofsteds in the new framework within the first year of it coming out, like that first year. And we were sitting there with rubbish summative data because it's kind of like you know, legacy data of previous schools. But they weren't interested in that. And what they saw in the classrooms 
you know, they were interested in and that actually just to make someone feel better, like you, you, you can do this and people think it's, you know, people see what it is. I can go, yeah, that's quite, that's all right. That seems to work for kids. And I can see where that's going to get them. So I can see what's happening in the classes at the moment. There you go. You know, you're doing visits certainly in the autumn term. People reach we, out. Yeah, I put, uh, I put them on, um, we put them on Twitter and then they sort of just, they got snapped in at least three seconds. And you can only do so many, but we'll do some more, I think. Um, I think I'm doing a talk for, so this is the first time I've talked about this, really, but I'm going to, because obviously I want to do it with you, Karen. But like, I think I'm going to do a proper presentation for challenge partners. They've asked, they came to me. Definitely for East Sussex local authority because they came to us to ask us to speak. And I think I'll do some. I mean, it's quite hard now because we run a teaching hub, but I'm going to try and make time to definitely do some for Mark in the math conferences. And I'll, so where I can this year, I'm going to try and sort of like talk about this again, uh, you know, with some visual aids, which is kind of useful. But I kind of feel it right to be here first because, uh, because you know, I've chatted to you about math for a number of years. And so it's nice to sort of talk about it here first. So we're going to try and, you know, make it as available as possible for people, like to, to listen to and, and pick. And I think probably, you know, I tend to ramble quite a lot. And, and um, you know, slides tend to focus me. So, you know, we try and fight, you know, I'll, I'll tweet when I'm doing something that's got slides <laughs> and it'll probably make a bit more sense and I'll be a bit more concise. But, um, but this is the first pass, isn't it? Like, uh, you know, so this is the rambly version. I'll do a better version in the future. I, I think you're being too modest. There wasn't, there wasn't much of a ramble there. It was all very, very, you know, I, I said in the book, you know, absolute gold. And I reckon this is, this is just as much you know, it's, it's been an, a fascinating chat, an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for joining me, Matt. No worries, man. Uh, have a great summer. Uh, it's been good. Yeah, thank you very much. Sorry, it's been quite long. Uh, so apologies to listeners, uh, but I hope you find it interesting. No. And you, can, you can just email me. If, you, if you've got any questions or you want to visit all stuff, then just, um, well, I'm at Matt Spain 36 Forget my own Twitter thing. <laughs> and just DM me if you want, and I'll, I'll do what I can. Mm -hmm.